This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now enjoy today's message with Shay Robbins. We're continuing the Anthem series. And as I was processing through my notes for the messages that preceded me, I was amazed how God has lined up kind of the core messages of each one of these building on each other. And I want to share with you what I've been gleaning over the last several weeks. Uh, First one was what he's done, started with Ted. And the core message that popped out to me was our hope in Christ. Then he followed up with the battle belongs, our hope in the battle. Last week was Travis with King of Kings. Our hope in the battle, the hero saves the day. And today we're going to look at thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Our hope in the battle, the hero saves the day. It leaves us with an attitude of gratitude. And so um, we're going to look at a couple different things. We're going to look at the significance of the sacrifice that was made in blood on our behalf. And then we're also going to look at the gratitude that should come out of that and, and how gratitude can then influence our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And uh, so a couple weeks ago, I was in the back corner of the 1145 service. Yes, we've joined the 1145ers. Here's how I would set them apart from you guys. It's more the uh, NASCAR cage fighting group, okay? So the Robins fit in great. And and really the biggest difference is the percentage of mullets in the audience. So uh, last week, there was a mullet in front of us. It It was so majestic, it was actually distracting. And I offered to pay one of my kids five bucks to touch it. (laughs) But she was, yeah, she's a little skittish. So if you feel power leaving from your mullet and you turn around and there's a Robbins kid running off, you know they're just out there trying to make a living. All right? That's pretty tangent, to be honest. So 11.45, I'm sitting back there two weeks ago. And at the end of the service, our battle, I've got my eyes closed and I'm like getting emotional which I found uh, with five daughters, I'm crying more these days. It's not because I have five daughters. It's because I'm getting in touch with my emotions. And, uh, and so I'm getting emotional, and I open my eyes, and I look to my left, my 13-year-old standing next to me, and she's got her hands in the air, and she is sending it. And when I see that, I just, I mean, tears started rolling down my face. And they finally, you know, we finish the song, they bring the house lights up, and I'm just like wiping my slobbery face, trying to clean up the mess. And uh, I like having a beard for two reasons. Number one, I think it looks cool. And, and number two is there's less cleanup when you've got tears streaking down your face. So I know, you know, like if you see a guy who's got a manly beard, it's not a manly beard, it's a tear sponge, all right? <laughs> And you know the rule, the bigger the beard, the more emotional the man. So on the way in, you probably saw this tall Scandinavian guy out there, Cameron. He's got a huge Viking beard. Very emotional. Right? So um, I walk out of that and I'm just like, it means so much. When we study the theology of what our worship songs are saying, it changes the game. 
Because you begin to identify the truth and the impact that it has on your life. And then when you sing out, it brings those words to life. A song becomes worship. And so I want to open the message with a question for you today. What changes after you have been saved? And the reason I ask that question is because I think that there have been times probably in all of our lives, for those of you who placed your hope and your faith in Christ, where you're keenly aware of God's love and goodness and, and forgiveness in your life. And out of that, you have a proper amount of gratitude, and it just changes the way that you live your life. Well, there's, there's times where as time passes, our gratitude can become numbed, right? There's maybe a little bit of distance between um, that moment that felt emotional, and we, we become just a little bit hardened. And, and my hope is, is that today, that we can reacquaint ourselves with the significance of Jesus' sacrifice and the gratitude we ought to have having been saved. So I want to tell you a story. I ran into it about a year ago, and it's the story of a guy named Colin Dowler. Colin lives up on a place called Quadra Island, which is a Canadian island. It's in between Vancouver Island and the coast of Canada. And he grew up, he'd run outside, and he would look at the coastline of Canada, and he would see a mountain range with two peaks that stood up tall at 7,000 feet. Those two peaks happened to be nicknamed after his legendary grandpa, Doogie Dowler. The legend of Doogie Dowler. And so him and his brother, they would always be plotting, you know, if that's my, that mountain's named after my granddad, we're going to have to climb it. They say, we're going to go out and do the doog, right? And, uh, and so anyway, a day before his 41st birthday, after many failed attempts, he tells his wife, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to climb Doogie Dowler. I'm going to go do the doog. And reluctantly, she says yes, because she didn't love the idea of him climbing by himself. But she gave him the thumbs up, and, and so Colin, he gets on his mountain bike, he rides down to the harbor, he loads his mountain bike up in a boat, and motors across to the coast of Vancouver. The only thing over there at the base of the mountain was one logging camp, and there was about a seven-mile stretch of road that you could ride to the base of the mountain, and then things got gnarly. Um, for any of you who have been to the Pacific Northwest and North, you know that the woods are thick and they are gnarly. There's times where you can't even see your feet as you're walking through the bush. Mount Doogie Dowler was known for having snow caps, and when it didn't, water was pouring down it in every direction. And oh, by the way, there's grizzly bears in that territory. So he parks his boat. Uh, the one thing he realizes is he's getting all his gear and he's loading up on his mountain bike is that he forgot to bring a can of bear spray. So he rides into the lumber camp and the cook happens to be sitting out on the porch. He stops, says hello. The cook asks him, hey, is there anything else you need? And he's like, yes, actually, if you could spare some bear spray, I'd greatly appreciate it. So he goes and grabs him a brand new can of bear spray. Colin jumps on his bike and he starts riding up there. He rides all the way to the end of the logging road, gets off, and he begins to hike up Mount Doogie Dowler. As he's hiking, it's super wet and the rocks were very slick. And he gets up about halfway and decides, I got to abort mission. This is too sketchy, especially when I'm by myself. 
So he makes his way back down through the, bu the bush to his mountain bike. He gets on his mountain bike and he begins cruising down the road. He cruises a couple miles down the road. And as he comes around a corner, he sees a grizzly bear standing right in the middle of the road. It was a tall, skinny, mangy looking thing. Uh, later, he said that it was measured nose to, or nose to foot at nine feet tall. So he stops his bike and he says he's got about 100 feet between him and the bear and he's just praying to himself, please walk into the bush. He stands there and the bear wags his head and looks at him as if he's thinking about what to do and the bear starts towards him. The bear's walking towards him and Colin, of course, is getting panicky. So he swings his leg off of his bike. He puts the bike between him and the bear and he gets out a hiking pole and extends it as far as it'll go. The bear keeps moving towards him and it comes to his side and he kind of shifts to the side and puts the bike between him and the bear. The bear looks at him, wags his head again and keeps on walking by. And he's got the bear's rump. He said, it was close enough for me to touch and he's thinking to myself, my brother is never gonna believe this story. Well, as he's thinking that, all of a sudden the bear pulls a 180. The bear's looking at him. He turns around with the bike in front of him and he takes his hiking pole and he puts that hiking pole right in the middle of the bear's forehead. And he said, for a moment, we had a standoff. And then all of a sudden the bear rolls his head and bites onto his hiking pole. So they're caught in a tug of war and then the bear grabs it, rips it out of his hand and throws his hiking pole into the ditch. So now it's, there's the only thing standing between him is his bike and the bear begins to advance. The next thing he knows, the bear grabs onto his side, bites him right in the flank, and picks him up and begins walking away with him. As he's dangling there, he's hopeless. He's got nothing to protect himself. He's thinking, the only thing I can do is I'll try and gouge his eyes. So he can reach one of the bear's eyes. He reaches up, and with all of his might, he shoves his thumb into the bear's eye, and the bear starts freaking out. And he says, it was just like a blur of hair and woods, and the next thing he knew... He's in the bush on the ground and the bear is on top of his legs. The bear begins to bite his legs. He sinks in, uh, in his bite, shakes his head and Colin's sitting there. And as you guys have heard, maybe some of you have experienced in near death moments, time begins to stand still. And he's thinking through what an idiot I am to come out here and risk my life all by myself. So he's thinking about his family, He's processing through this and he thinks, I'm, I'm dead. I'm going to die out here. Well, in his line of thinking, all of a sudden he realized his dad had given him a gift uh, not, not long before he left. As he describes it, he said, this is the only gift he could remember his dad ever giving him outside of Christmas and his birthday. He had given him a pocket knife. So he reaches down to his pocket and he pulls out a pocket knife with two hands. He opens it up. Colin's a little guy, weighs about 125 pounds, and he says with all of his might, he hauls off and stabs this bear in the neck. The bear stands up, his knife pulls out of its neck, he looks at him, and blood starts pouring out of the bear's neck. And this is what, this was Colin's epic moment. He said, we're both bleeding now, bear. <laughs> and the bear gets off of him, walks away, and the next thing he knows, it disappears in the bush. So he's laying there, his legs are mangled. 
He, he says that he takes off his sleeve, he ties it around the leg that was in the worst shape as best he could, and he crawls to his bike out of the bush. He managed to get up on his bike, and one leg was completely useless, so he used his good leg. He didn't have any clips, and he would push down and put his foot underneath the pedal and pull up. And he had about a mile to go up to crest a hill before he could start coasting down. And so just with the human will to survive, he pushes down, he pulls up. He pushes down, he pulls up for a mile until he reaches the crest. And then he goes cruising down into the loggers camp. He goes down to the loggers camp and literally crashes on the steps of the porch where he saw uh, the cook. And the men come out and they find him and he's absolute mess. Of course, he's bleeding profusely. They said the gash in his back, they could see his internal organs. They thought for sure he was going to die. So those loggers start tying tourniquets. They call Life Flight. Life Flight comes. They pick him up. And as they're flying out, uh, he had bled out so much, they give him blood on the Life Flight as they're going to the hospital. Well, the next thing he knows, Colin wakes up, and he's in the hospital with all of his loved ones. And the doctor tells him, had we not given you a blood transfusion, you would have died. And he's sitting there in the room. And uh, I listened to a podcast of this story. And, and Colin could give you very little of the details because he just got so emotional when he was describing this hotel room. But here's one quote that I, I pulled from him. He said, I have never felt that before. I don't know how to describe it how actually loved we are. You know, uh, some of you might be familiar with this setting, with a loved one that's died, or perhaps a near-death experience. Um, Stephanie Watson was talking to me uh, backstage about the encounter that she had. All of her family gathered around her mom as her mom was breathing her last breath. And, and leading up to that, they had spent, I think it, she said it was seven hours in that room. And she said, I, I didn't want it to end. There was no animosity. There was no sibling rivalry or drama. It was just them speaking words of life and gratitude over their mom that had loved them for a lifetime. And I share this story with you just to, to reacquaint you with the perspective that, that you have when you've been saved. And so it's with this perspective that I want to jump in to the second verse uh, of this song that we're looking at today, Thank You, Jesus, for the Blood. And here's what it says. It says, So you made a way across the great divide, left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. And there at the cross you paid the debt I owed, Broke my chains, freed my soul. For the first time, I have hope. We're going to look at a couple passages today. We're going to spend a little time in Galatians. We're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews. And we're going to look at a, a couple references in 1 Peter to get an understanding of gratitude in view of our redemption through Jesus' blood. And we'll start in Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes to the Galatian church. He says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. 
couple things that I want to point out in this text. The first one is when you read through a text and you see multiple references, you know that the author is trying to bring your attention to an important point. And so we see twice, under the law, under the law. And to help us understand that, how many of you love a good Western, an old Western? There's very few people in the world that love Westerns more than Robbie Robbins, my dad, and Earl Robbins, my grandpa. And so I grew up sitting on Grandpa Robbins' lap watching the classic Westerns with the Duke, Clint Eastwood, and every version of Tombstone. And, and the storyline in every one of those Westerns, it's always the same. You got a Western frontier town that's getting a little bit out of control. There's lawlessness. People are getting bullied until a character who represents justice rises up, puts the badge on their chest, and they lay down the law. Well, that story is not original to Westerns. It actually originated in God's Word, the story of man's redemption. An interesting point that I want to uh, lay out today is that uh, according to God's design, according to his authorship, he gave man free will. And with that freedom, there's something about his design that allows us to experience and to understand a part of his character that we wouldn't otherwise be able to if we were just uh, puppets in the hand of the grand puppeteer. Now, if we didn't have free will, this probably wouldn't be such a mess. It'd be a lot cleaner storyline. But that's not God's design. He gave man free will, and according to, to the story in this book, man chose rebellion and made a mess of things. In fact, rebellion and lawlessness was unleashed to the point where when God surveyed the whole earth, he said, this is a mess we need to start over. So he picks out one righteous family in Noah. He sets them apart and he rinses the table and he starts over. Shortly after Noah, he raises up a man of justice, a man named Moses, and through Moses, God established the law. And the law was put in place so that we would know right from wrong and we would know the weight of our sin or our rebellion in God's eyes. And, and so we see that, that under the law that you and I, we stand guilty before a just God. But in God's divine authorship, he also wrote into the story, a story of redemption, a love story to welcome us back into his family, no strings attached. And in that Galatians passage, the word is redeem. We're going to do a little Greek study. The New Testament was written in Greek, and Greek was a great language because it was extremely precise. And so if we want to get a, a precise understanding of what the author is trying to say, we look at the Greek and then we can see a definition that's set apart. So this word for redemption uh, comes from the root word agorizo, which means to buy, purchase, or acquire as property from a slave market. Well, the word used in Galatians by Paul is ex agorizo, which means bought from the slave market, never to go back again. It's to rescue and to set free. And the reason I share with you the root word is I want to illustrate the difference, how this is set apart, bought from the slave market, never to go back again. Galatians chapter 4, it picks up 
in verse 7, it says this, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as part of God's story, it's not just that you've been redeemed, that you've been made right, that you've been picked up and put back on your feet. No, there's more. There's more extravagance to the story in that, that not only did he put you back on your feet, but he welcomed you into his family as an heir of the king. It's from the bottom of the barrel to the throne room is what redemption looks like for those who place their trust in Jesus. Let's look at the chorus now. The chorus picks up. It says, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. I think a really important question for us to answer this morning in this conversation or conversation is why redemption required Christ's blood. If you step back and you're, a, you're not a Christian or you're new to the faith, uh, you hear Christians singing about blood, talking about blood, drinking blood, and you're like, what is this? This is weird. Okay. And so I'll, we're going to dig in. I want to understand what is the significance of blood? The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9.22, and he makes a very profound statement. It says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What's the significance of blood? What was it that saved Colin Dowler's life? It was the blood transfusion, right? So we, we understand from a physical sense that the life is in the blood, and if the blood leaves me, so does life. Well, not only in the physical sense is, true, is that true, but there's also a parallel in the, in the spiritual sense that's also true. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, by this will, we have been sanctified. So sanctified means to be set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Now, we're going to enter into a little bit of context. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering. So underneath the Old Testament law that God established through his man of justice, Moses, there was a a priest or priests that were appointed to offer sacrifices for the sins on behalf of the people of Israel. And the way that that sacrificial system worked is when the people were in sin, they would bring something that was valuable to them, a perfect, unblemished lamb. They would bring that lamb, which represented great value in their culture, and they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice that lamb. And the blood that was shed on behalf of that lamb would cover the sins that were committed by the people of God. The problem with the Old Testament system was this, though, is that the next time a person committed sin, they'd have to bring another sacrifice. And so the priests were constantly spilling blood, shedding blood, sacrifices being made, and every single time it was reinforcing man's need for an ultimate sacrifice. It was a foreshadowing of the anointed one, the Messiah, the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind for all time. He's coming. 
And so in the Old Testament law, we look forward to Jesus. And Jesus said this. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but rather I came to fulfill the law. The author continues. He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It forgiven in the moment, but the, but the cost of sin would remain. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And Peter says in, in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says it this way. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I was trying to build out a point following this. And as I was trying to build out this point, I was trying to come up with a descriptor, a word that could describe the cost paid in our redemption story. And I, I even got the thesaurus out. And I, I'm like trying to find a word that accurately describes the cost. And I could not find one. Here's some that I came upon. Infinite, incomparable, beyond measure, incalculable, inestimable. Inestimable. It's actually a, really word, a real word. I, even if I can't pronounce it, it doesn't mean it's not real. Um, and I, I just can't come up with a word that aptly describes it. Hebrews 10, 18, it says this. It says, now where there is forgiveness of these things and offering for sin is no longer required. Whatever the word is, the sacrifice was immense enough to cover all sins for all mankind for all time. In Peter's words, the precious blood of Christ. So my question for you is, is how does Christ's redemption change you? What's your response? I peeled through the scriptures and I looked for the response of others, people that had a direct interaction with Jesus, a life-changing interaction. The disciples, many of them were fishermen. When he walked up to them and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they dropped their nets and they followed him. He came up to the Samaritan woman at the well. And after a conversation with him that was life-changing, she runs back to her town. She tells the people in the city, she proclaims, come, see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Zacchaeus, a man who was looked down on in his culture for betraying their, uh, their people, Zacchaeus is called down out of the tree by Jesus, and he proclaims, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Mary Magdalene, who was tormented by seven demons and was freed by Jesus, so great was her commitment that she served him all the way to the grave. She was one of the few disciples that was with him at the crucifixion and she was honored to be the first one who showed up to find his tomb empty. 
And she ran back and proclaimed to the other disciples that he had risen. Nicodemus was a man of high standing in the Sanhedrin. He was a man who had spent his entire life to build up his treasure, his notoriety, and his voice in their community. Being a secret follower of Jesus, he and Joseph of Arimathea arranged to obtain the body of Jesus, and he purchased 100 pounds of spices. And according to Jewish custom, he buried Jesus, forsaking his worldly gain, and expressed his love and devotion. So what do you do? How do you let Christ's redemption change you? There's a passage that I haven't been able to get off of recently, Revelation 12, 11. And I'll just give you a snapshot of the eschatology or the end times around it. But um, this passage, it's John speaking about the height of the tribulation. And at this time, Satan, the accuser, is finally cast out of heaven where he'd uh, taken up the ear of the king sitting on the throne, making accusations against the brethren. He's thrown out of heaven, and he makes war with men. And this passage speaks of their victory over Satan. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even unto death. For those of you who have given your heart to Christ, you have been covered by the blood of the lamb. Satan has no power over you when you walk in the power of that forgiveness. But you see what the believers in the end times, they didn't stop there. There was two more things that they did. One was that they spoke the word of their testimony. And I give you that charge today that you would be fearless in the town square, in your community, in your home, in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And finally, they did not love their life even unto death. As Paul write, writes Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think it's time for us to take up the banner as a church and to begin to live that way. We're going to sing, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. But appropriately, it's appropriately so, before we do, we're going to take communion together as a body of Christ. Communion is a reminder of the sacrifice that was made by Jesus. His bread represents his body being broken. The cup represents his blood that was shed on behalf for the sins of all mankind. Communion set apart for those that are followers of Jesus. And perhaps there's some of you in here that are drawn to take communion but don't have a relationship with Jesus. What I tell you is you're not drawn to communion. You're drawn to the God of the universe and he wants a relationship with you. And so I would ask you that you would sit this out and just observe communion. But if you want to give your heart to Christ, we want to invite you down to the front. I'll have a prayer team up after this. I'd love to pray with you. Um, but for those of us in relationship with Christ, this time is, is meant to be appropriately somber. And so I want to give you guys some time to pray, and then I'll lead you in the Lord's Supper.
Father, I want to ask God that your spirit would come upon us today that we might know the sacrifice of Jesus, that you would magnify it in our heart and our mind, and that out of that, gratitude would boil up in such a way that we couldn't even contain it. Jesus took the bread on the night he was betrayed and he broke it and he gave it to his followers and he said this is a representation of my body which is broken for you when you do this remember me and then Jesus took the cup he held up the cup and he said, this cup is a representation, representation of my blood, which is given for the forgiveness of sins. When you take the cup, do this in remembrance of me. Church, I want to invite you to your feet. And let's sing thank you, Jesus, for the blood at the top of our lungs.